Quack Talk Time. It's Crystal in the studio. Thank you to Auntie K, who just left. Love the jazz that I listened to on my way over. In fact, that Umalu that she... Wow, did you hear that? Amazing voice. Anyway, thanks for bringing all these new talented artists to here. And that's the thing about K2H. You know, it's like somebody knows somebody or heard of somebody's interesting thing and then it comes over and then we have this space, this incredible space to share and to develop and to move forward with so many rich voices. So love it. Anyway, today, ooh, I've got a studio guest who will be here in a bit, a PhD student in the English department who has this new novella she wrote and we're going to be talking about it. The Sea of Dead Souls. Ooh, what a provocative title. Can't wait to unpack it. Anyway, yeah, so stay, keep it locked on K2H. I'm going to be interviewing Nina Louise on her new work, The Sea of the Dead Souls. Back in the studio, this is Krista. You're tuning into K2H. That was Destiny's Child. If you are not aware, if you didn't watch Charlie's Angels or you didn't grow up with Beyonce pre-Beyonce. Um, and the song before that was from Duke Ellington. And now I have the pleasure of introducing my guest who's going to be gabbing with me for the next God knows how long because I know we both can talk for a long time here. As I introduced before, uh, she's just written a new novella. She is a PhD student here in the Department of English. And I love the title of this uh, novella, The Sea of Dead Souls. And I look forward even more to unpacking how this came to be and the story behind it and the story behind this amazing woman in front of me. So welcome, welcome, Nina Louise. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. This is so exciting. Yes. I feel like being in this radio station means like I'm back in the real world, even though it's a, a room. <laughs> well, it's like real world, but like retro real world, right? Yes, indeed. Yes, is it? Like, it's like a trip here. I, I love being back in the studio, too. It's like, wow, did you see all the vinyls in the room when yes, you're coming it was in? it amazing. And yeah. I, don't, I don't think I've had a chance to mention that my first undergrad school 30 years back University of Laverne Ooh. I worked and did radio I, did, oh. I was the DJ for like a semester but I just now kind of came back to me just now being in here well so you know funny. if you're interested <laughs> K2H is always looking for new voices oh that's lovely so, I, I might be interested <laughs> I'm gonna pull you in because we need more people to have stories to tell you know um, so let's start by um, just talking about you first forget your notes Miss Scholarly Woman let's okay. talk about you first <laughs> okay you know <laughs> <Don't>, me already <laughs> well let's full disclosure let me just explain how we both were acquainted and this is very recent and this is through the commission of racism and bias that we're both working on together and i'm so excited to learn you know just from our meetings we started yes. to know how 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 connected our yes. projects were yes both taking place in the 1940s both about the south and america's historically segregated south and yours is from the black history perspective yep. correct me if i'm wrong yes it is and then mine's from the chinese perspective but still in the black neighborhood and dealing with jim crow so it's crazy and i'm really looking forward to this conversation <laughs> me as well and you know <laughs> when you introduced yourself and you told your story i was like this what? is so yeah. meant to be yeah because because not last minute, but sort of early on in the first draft, I had thought about adding a Asian family, but just because I had discovered Okay. 
Sorry. No worries, no worries. So I realized that because of the recruitment on the part of America to get more workers to help with the plantation after the um, Emancipation Proclamation, that there were a lot of Chinese here early on before a lot of people realized. And then they didn't, you know, just come on over. They were invited over. They were asked to come over and work through newspaper ads and everything. And so I thought, well, even in the 1940s, 1950s, there still must be, even though there wasn't huge populations, there still must be areas, even in the South, where they were... Mm -hmm little pockets right and so i thought oh how interesting um to just have even just this little family kind of show their face because then in the next story i have a broader story where it's a relationship with a black woman and an asian man so i thought right oh, maybe i'll just kind of tip in so that the reader can be aware and say oh wait there were Chinese people here in the 1940s. Why are you interested? I mean, obviously, in your historical research, you stumble on these things that are so many untold stories. Right. But why do you personally want to insert that aspect into your story? So it all started when um, I started to know my Japanese relatives. Okay. So I have a oh. niece and a nephew in Okinawa, Naha. Oh. Yes. And just a way to sort of get to know them better. I wanted to know the culture. But the story, the first story I had with Naomi, who was my key character in To the Sea of Dead Souls, was Little Tokyo. Because a lot of people do not know, even those who are living in L.A., that Little Tokyo for three years was predominantly black. And that's because when they interned the Japanese, Uh it was a ghost town. It was completely empty. And so what they did is when they were recruiting Southerners to come and work the war jobs uh-huh. and the industrial jobs, they had to put them somewhere. And there was such heavy redlining and um, housing laws that there were very few spots where black people could live. So they said they were the, uh, the majority of the renters in that area said, well, we were going to make this like a small Mexican town. And it was too late. They had already flooded with black southern migrants because there was nowhere else for them to go. And they instantly, you know, the... If you've been to L.A., you know that the I'm trying to think. I went to UCLA for four years, but I didn't really travel much outside because I didn't have a car. But Little Tokyo, is that near... That's downtown. Yes, okay. And UCLA is more beachside. Right, right. But um, when you take the train, you're literally blocks from Little Tokyo. Okay. So historically, so, you're saying that Little Tokyo, abandoned by during the Japanese internment, came a flooding of these um, the population from the south. Correct. That nobody really seems to know of. So, but historically, no. how did that evolve? Like, wh- how many of that generation that moved there are still there now today? Do you know? Well, not a lot, because... So as the story goes, um, real quick, is that when the Japanese were interned... Yeah. And then those who... Once they were in the camps, some of the, depending on the age group, were allowed to go back to school. But if, if you were of certain age, you either had to work or, or, I'm sorry, you either had to go into the war or you had to stay in the camp. And most opted or some opted to go into the war and then others opted as a phrase, which is called No-No Boy from um, John Okada's book. 
Um, and so they opted not to go and serve in the war. But so my story takes place about a man who does go and serve and then comes back and finds that little Tokyo is now renamed Bronzeville because it was called Bronzeville for three years, had its own chamber no of commerce, commerce and everything. Wow. But there were Hispanics who lived there. There were um, Germans who were trying to hide out from their countrymen. There were Italians, but it was predominantly black Southerners. So, isn't it fascinating? And it's also sad to think that our history that we know is so black and white. Yes, 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 There are so many rich stories that we don't know about. So, boy, I mean, okay, so you just touched on a little historical thing in L.A. that links to your story, but we didn't even get the backdrop of, like, who you are and how you... So you told me a little bit about you having Japanese relatives. Uh, Where did you grow up? Like, yeah, what uh, Asian connection? Yeah. Well, Well, I actually grew up here in Hawaii Pahu. I graduated. So a girl. <laughs> yes, I graduated the class of 1986. Yeah, wow. my class. Wow. So, yes. Um, how, why? What historically? Why? How did you end up growing up here? So, my mom was fleeing, basically. Okay. Um, a very bad situation, and oddly enough, at a Christmas party. She won two round-trip tickets to Hawaii with a whole week's worth of hotel. Okay. My mom, being the slickster that she was, asked them if she could make it for one way and to cash out the hotel. And at the time, we had her sister. Where are you from? Where are you moving from, though? What's the so story we, behind uh, I was born in Tacoma, Washington. Okay. And that's where we grew up. We did travel okay, you know, okay. here and there, right, Colorado right. Springs, where family was. But the majority of my childhood, before I came here, which was 10, 11, um, was in Tacoma, Washington. Okay, all right, got so it. So that's where we came from. Got it. That's where she worked for DHL Okay. back in the day. Okay. And um, they were like, okay, that's an odd request, but sure. Okay. And then she said... So she had this plan yeah, to, to like move to forward escape. and not look yep. back. Yep. Right. And um, there was a DHL here. Right. And and they said, we can't, you know, promise you the same type of job and seniority, but there is an opening. So if you're willing to take it and move your way up like you did originally, then let's go. And sh- and that's what she did. So that's how we ended up here in 81. Yeah. So back then, do you remember? I'm sorry, I will get to your novella, but I just want oh, no to like painting we... a picture of who you are. So, you know, as a young adolescent moving to Hawaii, mm-hmm. you know, not knowing a person, and you know how local it is here, especially in Waipahu. Now, how did that work? Like, tell me. I was terrified. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> was so, how did they just... treat you as an outsider, or did they and, not? You and know? you know what? It's It was really, it's funny because... As I think about um, going back over to Japan for a visit, and I notice they use that word foreigner a lot. Yeah. They don't say that you're American or that you're, you know, um, a Finlander. They say foreigner. And that's what I felt like here. Right. We were the, uh, what is that word they use? was mainlander. Yes. You're a mainlander. And it's confusing for me because mainlander, when I lived in Hong Kong, meant China. Mm. So, like, are you a mainlander? It's usually if it refers to you being from China. And so, but here it's like, yeah, anybody from the mainland. Yeah, I and know. And it took me a while to get used to the fact that they were saying, oh, you know, the main states. Right. That's what you're talking about? Yes, yes. So I'm like, oh, okay. Okay. So they would always refer to us as the mainlanders, and there was a hub of us. So we, I don't okay. want to say that we were the outsiders so much as 
as because there were some kids, especially if they were into breakdancing. Do you remember the 80s? Oh my gosh, of All course. All about breakdancing. Don't tell me you do how to spin on your head. <laughs> no, I didn't, but my uh, first boyfriend was a, a, a wonderful breakdancer, and so they had a nice little group, and it was really like two locals, and then it was the rest of the military brats. Okay. But we weren't military, right. but of course, because we because were Because you were the part of the outsiders. The yeah, 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 yeah. We hit up with them. Okay. And I think... Slowly over time, you know, after sophomore year, then junior year, more people started to know your name and see your face and opened up. And um, Was there so, any sense of racism back then? You know what? It's funny because my boyfriend and I in our, our theater class put on a play, the first play ever in the cafeteria. <laughs> I love it. And I wrote it, and it was called the... The Winter of Christmas Claws or something like that. It was a, cool. the funniest, silliest name. And it was the only time I heard somebody pass me and say the N-word. Oh, wow. Oh, Even in, when you're on the mainland, you never heard that term? Well, I had heard it before when I was a kid. But in Hawaii, to get but that in here, Hawaii, I was like, yeah. wow. And, it, and I was, gosh, I can't remember if we did the play in junior year or senior year. But I remember being stunned because yeah. I was thinking... Ye -ye. But you're brown, too. Yeah. So <laughs> why would you be name-calling? But um, I never heard it, you know, from anyone else. No one at my school or, or people didn't go. We're not going to be around those people. Or, you know, it was never about color so much as it was about you Local, were from the you're, mainland. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know That's what right. I mean? That's, That's what right. I felt. Like yes. it, I never felt like it was about color so much as it was... You weren't born and raised here. Absolutely. So. Yeah. So it's interesting. So we have a context of like you coming from Tacoma and moving to Hawaii. Local girl didn't know you went to Waiapahu High. And, and here you are at UH doing your PhD. It's amazing. So there's a lot of stuff in between we're going to fill in. But why don't we take a quick break because I have to do a few announcements. But when we come back, I'm talking to Nina Louise about her new novella, The Sea of Dead Souls. All right. So a quick announcement from POW, the Prevention, Awareness, and Understanding group. Violence Against Women program provides training and education to students, faculty, and staff around issues of relationship violence, sexual assault, and stalking. POW Violence also provides crisis support and referrals to survivors of sexual and relationship violence. If you or someone you know needs support against domestic violence, please email uhmpau at hawaii.edu. Again, that's uhmpau POW at hawaii.edu. EDU or call 956-8059. That's 956-8059. All right, back in the studio. You're listening to Quok Talk. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Crystal, and I'm here with Nina Louise, PhD student in the dark Department of English, and we're talking about, well, we haven't really talked about our novella yet, but because we got so <laughs> interested in your life just before that, and we could talk like forever on anything, really. So many stories. So, um, yeah, thanks. Nina, before we took off, we were just explaining, if people were just tuning in, a little bit about context of your life, uh, growing up uh, in Tacoma initially, and then moving over here when you're, what, 10, 11, something like that? Actually, I was a little bit older, 13. Okay. All right. Ooh, teen years to yes. move is uprooting is yes. really quite something. Yes. And when I, my first eighth grade was, gosh, Wahiwa? I think Wahiwa <laughs> Elementary, it. I believe, was 
the first school and when my mom found a place she was like well she's already in school let's not uh. her. the boys didn't mind but they were like, let's just leave Nina where she is. She's in eighth grade and she can move over yeah. and be at the high school. And, you know, it's one and done. And so I stayed there with my aunt and uncle and their oh, four kids. Separately. Oh, yeah, interesting. Yeah, but it, was, it wasn't that much longer. I want to say it was literally mid-year. Like, okay. I think we came here late summer. We all started school. Yeah. She had her part-time job, then went full-time, got her, got her own place, and then... She moved, and my brothers were like, well, we're on Christmas break. We don't mind starting a new school. But I was like, eh, I you don't really want to switch schools mid-year. So they allowed me to stay, and then I went and moved in with my mom and the family for, you know, by summer. Um, you just reminded me, you know, we are celebrating Women's Day today. Yes. And the Women's um, month. month. Yes, exactly. Women's Month and Women's Day. And there was a Women's March actually happening right now down oh my town. Gosh. And that's why I couldn't join it. If anybody is out there and you have access to getting down to the Capitol, I think the march starts at four o'clock. So that's in like 25 minutes. Um, important stuff going on now. But I also think, you know, you just talking about your story of your mom coming, escaping from something, um, finding work in a, in a foreign place. <laughs> I use that word foreign. Mm -hmm. But um, and how we as women adapt and to face, you know, certain types of challenges that we manage to yes. um, navigate yes. and grow from. Yes. And you have to. And you know what? I wrote a, for Martin Luther King holiday, I wrote an article for Kaleo News mm -hmm. about how Martin Luther King and his speech, I Have a Dream, has taught me a lot about women trying to find their place in the world, a space to call their own. Yeah. And in that discovery, I found several black women who had come to Hawaii in the late 1800s 1924, I think there was wow. a celebration of Alice Ball a yes, couple of Mondays yes, that's ago. Right. Um, Carlotta Stewart Lye was the first black woman to be principal here in uh, Honolulu Elementary Schools. And every, I think people move, women move, when they're just trying to find a place that they can call their own and they're comfortable in their own skin. Hmm. And you know, in the 1800s here, there was no issue with colorism. That didn't come until the missionaries came yeah and brought that over yeah you know so everyone got along and everybody liked everyone because everybody was a shade of brown right you know right um and so prejudices and racism didn't really start until a little bit later but even when carlotta stewart lie was here who married a chinese man hmm. in 1916 um you know she didn't have to face that type of prejudice and, and colorism that I sort of faced when I came here, but I think I assumed it was racism when it was really just, you're just different. Right. You know, again, it's that mainlander, islander difference. Yeah, yeah. And it wasn't until I was grown up and I could understand language and gestures to go, oh, yeah. that's what that was. It wasn't, but when you're a black kid, growing up you think that everybody dislikes you because you're black you don't have time to think could there be another reason i i think that this is a a really good point in breaking down what it means to be racist because uh you know, there are so many different elements to it. And of course, we can say that something was. So for example, like going back to my project with my grandmother growing up in the black neighborhood is I found in my research that um, 
the Chinese were racist against the black people. Mm. Now, where did that anti-racism come from? But then the more I looked into it, the more I was thinking, well, wait a minute. Is it all racism or is it the Chinese culture in whatever that Confucian value system was to stay away from people and do your own thing? Exactly, exactly. And that took me a long time to understand about Asian people and their culture because I used to be shunned so much when I was younger, in my 20s and 30s, smile at any Asian woman I saw and never would get any of that recognition. But when I moved or when I lived in Okinawa with my brother and his wife at the time, and I thought, oh, this is how they are everywhere. (laughs) Exactly. It's not personal. So why was I thinking it was me? When it's just how they're raised. Like, right. They're kind of raised to not be in your face exactly. and in your business. And we don't grow up understanding each other's cultures and cultural body language and nuances yes, in that. Yes. Did you ever watch that um, talk show, The Red, is it The Red Table? With, um, oh, with um, Will, Will Smith's um, Jade Jada, Jada Pinkett. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so people who don't know it, you know, I haven't watched it recently, but it's Jada Pinkett. Her mom, her what's mom? her mom's name? Oh, I do not know okay, her but, mom's name. And She's the most elegant. Willow. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So oh, the three guess her mom is generational amazing. thing. Yes. But so I happened to stumble on this really important one with Lisa Ling at the table because Lisa I've Ling, an Asian American. So they they put it on the tables. Like, what is this um, anti-Asian sentiment, right? Yes. And the mom, uh, Jada's mom, was saying, well, honestly, you know, I went to I, I was at the airport and I tried to be nice and I said something nice to this Asian lady behind me and she didn't respond and so. It brought it out, and, and then told, Lisa's and Lisa like, well, did she, you know, sometimes Asians tend to, like, just shut down. They don't like yeah. to interact. It's not well, intentional. And, and it's still today, because I, I was reading on notes for, if in case I go and travel to Japan, you know, all these YouTube videos and, and TikTok, they say, don't be offended if... You know, you say hello or good morning. He's like, we don't do that there. It's just people People wonder why you're coming over to say hello. Yeah, they they right, instantly right. are thinking, oh, wait. What do you want from me? Exactly. Yes. Because they're not used to it. It's not in their culture. And I think it's really, this is why I write these books and I combine the black yes. story and the Asian story. Can you bring I in all black people and Asian people to understand one another. And I think once we do, we can understand how we both have been oppressed, our past, and how we can move forward and get along and work better. It doesn't mean that we have to be best friends and go off and marry each other, but if we can at least be empathetic, and this goes for everyone in the world, not just black and uh, Asian, but if I firmly believe If you understand someone's struggle, Mm -hmm. whether you like them or choose to want to know them, you can at least understand them. Mm -hmm. And once you understand them, you can back up and go about your business and you're no longer in fear. And I think a lot of this Asian hate that we see, especially when the perpetrators are black, I think it is because we have been instilled that Asians are the bad people who are making us look bad and trying to take everything from us, and that is not the case. Yeah. You know, I had um, a professor at LMU, and uh, we were working on one of my stories at the time, and it might have been this novella or the bigger project, and she's Asian, and I said to her, I said, why do you think it's so hard 
for Asian and Black people to yeah. even try right. to make those first steps to get and along. And such a taboo if you did. Yes. Even yes, as friends. Yes. And she said because it's the whole divide and conquer. They want to keep us apart because together, you know, we yeah. form stronger units. And in the story about to- Little Tokyo and Bronzeville, mm. white newspapers purposely went out of their way to say to the Japanese, the black people don't want you here. Mm, they're forming right. committees they're now. It. And they're saying no Japanese allowed. And it was the opposite. There were flyers on every poll saying, neighbors, welcome the Japanese when they come back. Oh, wow. So they had to uh, retract that statement. Huh. Because they were like, don't you dare yeah. tell them that. We want them back here. And so that is how the black po- population ended up going to places like Compton and um, Lemire Park and all these other areas that are, well, at the time became predominantly black. Right. But they wanted this race war. There was even an article I found in Ebony Magazine that said out to start a race war because that's what they wanted to do. But the Japanese, when they came back and were able to get back their stores or their land, Mm. they said, hey, come and work for us. The black shops did the same thing. Said, hey, come and work with us. Doctors, Japanese doctors were working with black nurses. Everybody was working together. The only reason it shifted all back to Japanese and blacks moved out is because there wasn't enough room. <laughs> they And the jobs went. So once the war was over, camps were closed. Yeah. The jobs were right. also gone. There's a little competition so going on the there. Black yeah. people were like, "Oh, I don't have a job anymore. I got to go where the job is." Mm-hmm. So, excuse me. So a lot of people moved. Right. Even places like Oakland. Yeah. And moved there. Moved out to southern states. Okay. Because so they pushed over. You know, still the city had all these housing regulations uh-huh. and laws uh-huh. that did not change until about 1951, 52. Hmm. So they had yeah. to start right. spreading out and right. moving out. So it eventually, there's something with the three. Eventually, by three years afterwards, so about uh, 48, 49. It was almost all Japanese again. Right. See, so, so like historically, economically, everything is all related. And how you want, how one community needs to do what they need to do to survive. But at the same time, you know, like, I totally agree with you. But I also want to point out that um, there were some differences that created those tensions that there that we need to speak to at the same time. There is this hierarchical kind of a division. Right. Um, like, you know, going back to my case where the Chinese were in the South, you know, sure, some of the Chinese say that it was a symbiotic relationship. I'm not so sure. Yes, they were hum- they were nice and friendly to each other, mm-hmm. but the Chinese were the storekeepers. They were the owners, right? Mm-hmm. They yep. hired the black help, as in like errand boys or things like that. There was already kind of a relationship of based on power. Right. Um, so even and, if you say you're friendly, right. there's that tension. Right. And that still, you could say, was created by the government because they're yeah. allowing Chinese or anyone who wasn't black to own and to right. have a business and where black when you were, were black, not able to. yeah, you can't. And God forbid, you know, we are talking about the South. So the Jim Crow laws, the black code laws, everything yeah. kept them down. And then, you know, speaking about my story, 
trying to get out was just as hard as staying there and trying to survive. Yeah. Because neighbors and the law was like, you can't leave. There's too many people who have left. Who's going to farm the land? You got to stay here. And to the point to where they would do physical harm to keep families from leaving the South. So it was... Dang if you do, and dang if you don't. Gosh, I know. Okay, so let's get a little bit of black history going on here, slave history. We need to kind of set (laughs) up the context to enter your story. Uh, So do you want to give like a really kind of slavery 101? I'm going to give you like two minutes. (laughs) And this we can get into yours. I know, it's not. It's not right. It's rude for me to ask you like this. But um, I want to get into your story, but we need to give a little... Back, back history. Um, let's see where I can start, I guess. I guess I would start with, uh, you know, the, tranic, the transatlantic slave trades that happened in 16... Well, actually, I believe it happened even before the 1600s, the late 1500s. Um, well, how about the backstory of, like, your character? Like, what was she a family descendants of... Sl- slaves in which area and how did that or do you want to just kind of well so i do kind of start just the beginning with talking about the slave trade and how it goes into certain city cities and in this particular instance virginia and then they would sell off the slaves to the southern owners and southern properties right okay so naomi came her ancestors came from the ships and was sold and bought and she still had up until she was a young girl her great-grandmother and her grandmother around to tell her stories still about um africa and what her their grandmother and their mom were were able to share with them so that they still knew a little bit about their roots and where they came from so in this story she knows about Africa. She knows about African goddesses, but she also knows about the slaves and freedom, emancipation, Reconstruction era, and now what she's living in, which is the Jim Crow era. Okay. So, and then that's where the story takes place in 1940 is where we start off and we meet the Gatson family. In Louisiana, is that right? They're in Louisiana, Shreveport, Louisiana. I chose Shreveport because I have visited the area, but and I knew a good friend in Baton Rouge uh-huh. and New Orleans, but I chose that area because it was a high um, white supremacist area. It was known quite a bit for their lynchings mm. back in this time, so okay. that's why I chose it, because as I involve goddesses i also involve ghosts and the ghost of the dead and they help play a role in the gatson's escape is this an influence from your english uh you know all the readings on myths and legends or what is the connection of goddesses for you and i love that that you start with the goddesses you know what it was initially i wanted the character to be somebody who was not very strong and was kind of giving up and so I realized I needed her to have an alter ego Hmm. and back in this day we weren't into superheroes so she couldn't go and be like yay Wonder Woman right and so I thought about it 
and started reading through my research that goddesses were spoken of a lot in um, in African history. And so I thought, oh, what if one of her great grandmothers instilled in her these stories of African goddesses mm. and said that you can do anything because you come from kings and queens in a land of goddesses who rule the skies, who rule the rivers, who yeah. rule nature. And I thought, ooh, even having a bit of that in the story will give her strength when she needs it. Yeah. So the reader will be able to see, oh yeah, man, she's having it rough, but she's got this little Something, inspiration, yeah. right? Because we yeah. didn't have big movies and we didn't have big television so shows and models that they could say back in the 40s, ooh, Right. She's cool. I want to be like her when I yeah, grow up. Yeah. Naomi wouldn't have had that. She would have only had her stories in her books. Right. So if So she's well read, which she is, is unusual. Definitely, she is the only well read member of her family. She's trying to get she's trying to get the southern drawl out of her brothers, but they just are not having it. You know, I just finished reading Yellow Wife. Uh, oh, I've that. heard about that. Yes. And it's so on it's my, on my head. It's, my it's very much like she was the only reader and she was, you know, kept the secrets, you know. But yeah, so that that's brilliant. So then you, you incorporate into her character... Um, the, the secret talent to read in addition to the, the, the goddesses that carry her forward. Yes. Um, and the kind of the metaphor of the the sea. Do we want to kind of go there? Yeah, um, and there is a metaphor of the sea because it's about how, you know, when the slave ships were coming here, a lot of people knew that they were coming to torture. Yeah. They were coming to not a life. And so they jumped, fell, um, off the ships, mm -hmm. you know, they didn't have to be pushed. They would, they would jump to their deaths. And so I thought about all the bones that are at the bottom of the sea and how Naomi feels so at peace when she's with the sea or sees the water or ocean or river and connects with the river goddess that I thought, ooh, there should be a connection between her and her ancestors. So who is this river goddess? Ocean. Ocean. The goddess of love, fertility. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, can we bring it, you know, related to the indigenous? Um, I don't know. Is there is there a name for one here? Are oh, you aware? There are. There's so many. And, you know, depending on the culture. There's, there's a version so, for yeah, every, exactly. There's a variety right. of them. But, and it's weird that you say that because... I believe in one of our classes we were just talking about. So I did a presentation in my class yesterday on um, Nafunanu, Nafunanu, who is a goddess warrior. Hmm. So there's several stories about the legends of Nafunanu. And I would say that she is our version of right. ocean. Yeah. So she's called the river goddess, the goddess of fertility. But... There's so much more that she can do, too, mm. you know. And when they're goddesses... They like, can do it, anything right? they want. They can do anything. And so. the perfect, like, Women's History Month to celebrate the goddesses yes, around us. indeed. Or our inner goddesses, if you will. Yes. Um, so we needed to talk about that, too. But why don't we take a quick break? And when we come back, we're continuing to talk um, to Nina Louise about her new novella, The Sea of the Dead Souls, and just introducing the idea of goddesses. So... 
captivating. It's just it just brings such a richness to everything, you yes, know. Yes, and fun. Yeah. You know, when you're talking about a story like this, people being held back. You need to have a little bit of sparkle of, you know, what's cool, what's fun, what, You're right. what will keep the reader engaged. Because a heavy you topic, to you know, yeah. you don't want to, I mean, as much as it's important, people don't want to be yeah. dragged down and, you know. And yeah, feel miserable. Yeah. But when you hear about a goddess helping a young lady and, yes. her, and her brother get to safety, you're like, oh. I want to know that story. That's right. <laughs> the Sea of Dead Souls. We're going to continue after this. Don't go away. Keep it locked on Kate TUH. Yep. Thanks for keeping it locked. I'm Crystal here on Quark Talk in the studio with Nina Louise talking about life, talking about Waipahu, talking about the Sea of Dead Souls, and talking about African goddesses. Oh, I love Yay. I love just saying that. <laughs> I know, right? You know? Yes. And it's great, like I said, that every culture has their own set of goddesses, their myths. Um, for the follow-up story, because the uh, male character is Japanese, I looked up Japanese mythology and okay. looked up the deities, their goddesses, and I thought, ooh, you know, I never read about this stuff. And that was why, initially, too, you asked me why this combo, and, and not just... The so combo that, of having an Asian character in a with black, a black story. story. Right. And it's not just because of having the reader to be empathetic to these individuals, but there's just so much you can uncover mm -hmm. and discover about people's culture. And to complicate it all, right? Yeah. yeah. But then also just to, sometimes, you know, you'll read a book yeah. about somebody or a certain type of person or where their cultural background comes from, and then you have that aha moment where you're like, oh, mm. that's why they do yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Or that's why they say this. Or for me, it was like, oh, that's why no one ever looks at me and smiles back. <laughs> right? It's, it's not, not like, me. Yeah. It's not, yeah. So it's just, it's great to give people that aha moment, but also a little bit of new knowledge. I think I'm just a lover of learning. And it doesn't matter what I'm learning, if it's Hispanic history, Asian history, I just love it. And when you tell me, oh, they met somebody black back in the day, which was the case when how the little Tokyo story came mm -hmm. about is I won. Speaking of avenues to enter that you think are not mm -hmm. for you, mm -hmm. I entered this little Tokyo short story writing contest. And... It didn't say that I had to be Japanese right. or of Japanese descent. Good. It just said the story had to take place okay. in Little Tokyo and reference its history. Uh -huh. So I researched Little Tokyo, its history, came up with this cute little story. It was called Meet Up at the Shabu Shabu House. <laughs> so cute. Catchy, catchy. <laughs> and it was great. You know, it, it was great. I got second place. I was, I was so happy. This was in high school? No, this was... Um, Eighth grade? Gosh, no. This was like four <laughs> years ago. Oh, four or five sorry. years ago. <laughs> You're like, this was when you were 10? No. <laughs> I actually didn't start finding writing success until I was in my master's program at LMU, Loyola Marymount University. So you didn't like telling stories particularly as a kid? Oh, I loved telling stories. And people would tell me all the time, Nina, you should write that. You should mm -hmm. write that. But I would start and stop. Okay. Start okay. and stop. And I so what sparked it then? You know what, I think when I finally had a nice bunch of stuff and mm -hmm. people read them, 
it would always the critique would always be about the style of the sentences, the style mm-hmm. of the paragraphs. And I realized, oh, you know what? I need to go back to school. Mm. I shouldn't have left school because school teaches you a lot. Yes. It teaches you yes. teaches you prose. Um, poetry, But you have and, to want to be there, and you have to be in the right place. Exactly. And when you go right from high school, after two or three years, if it's exhausting you, you feel like, oh, I'm going to take a break, and yeah, I'll be back in that. a year. Exactly. Well, then the you're year more turned out it. to be 30 years. Oh, okay. Well, that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah, I give a ticket a little. Yeah. Right, right. So I came back, but then I came back with a passion. I just See? wanted to learn. And my goal was to finish a project. So whether it was a short story, an article, a book, whatever I started, I wanted to finish. And what was great with my faculty and my advisors is that they held me accountable. And you know, the first time around in college, I, I wasn't being held accountable. What did you study your undergrad? So where I got my degree was Antioch University, LA. They're a wonderful school, and they took me back even with a horrible GPA and having left University of Laverne, which is where Mm -hmm. I went to attend after leaving Waipahu. And I didn't think I, I mean, I was a C student here in Waipahu. I I don't even think I did homework. The only thing I would do was... Don't tell those listeners. (laughs) Well, I'm just saying, when I was a high school student, (laughs) yeah, the only thing I did... Look at you now, you're a PhD student. Right, but the only thing I did was read. So See? I read all kinds of okay. books, all right. but I was really into acting at the time. Oh, so I that's wanted right. to the be play. the characters, yes, and I wanted to... What was the name of that play you wrote in high school? The the Ghost of Christmas Past or something, or the, the Ghost of Santa Claus Past or something okay. like that. It was such a silly title. And what's funny is an alumni um, member came to me on Facebook and she said, do you still happen to have that script? And I'm like thinking, yeah, right. from 40 years ago? You want <laughs> oh, me yeah, to- it's on my computer. <laughs> yeah. You know how many times we moved in, yeah. the, in that time? I've lost so much of my work just because of the way tech technology has, right? Yes, but you know what? I wonder if the school, you never if know. I turned it in as homework, I wonder if the school would have a copy of They might of have it, archive, that right? Be, yeah, it, yeah, that would be really cool to uncover, like, first writings. Yeah, see? <laughs> so I want to ask you, I know, as a scholar now, here at UH, um, when you read so many different things, so let me just give you my perspective on this first, is that when I read things on like critical race issues, feminism, all these other areas that kind of try to break the boundaries and disrupt these dominant narratives, right? Yes. I find that we get trapped in like, okay, so we have, you know, Toni Morrison, we have Bell Hooks, we have Butler, we have all these be- amazing scholars, but they're also very categorized um, so to, to reinforce this black and white narrative. And I don't know if you agree with me, because in the beginning, we're talking about the importance of of complicating that with like, okay, yeah, well, shared Chinese stories, in, intersecting yes. histories. Yep. Inter- we don't have enough Interconnected of that. stories. Yeah. Yes. And we don't have that. And that's what I noticed was missing on the bookshelves in Barnes and Noble and with a special attention to historical fiction. Yeah. It's like everybody's in World War Two is all white. And I was like, well, wait a minute. Why yeah. aren't there telling us what was happening in the U.S. Right. during World War II or what was happening with the Japanese, what was happening during the Great First Migration, the Second Great Migration. That was all during World War II. 
Um, and I and I understand completely the stories of the Holocaust. So I in no way think that those should be minimized or reduced. I'm just saying that those are not the only stories. And what's so interesting is when I took a Holocaust class, actually at my first undergrad, I learned that there were Afro-Germans. Mm-hmm. I didn't even of know course. that. Because, you know, as a teenager, right. you think, that you learn from the history books white, that, are, that yeah. everybody's white there. There's nobody black there. And they don't teach, like, the history in Shanghai when they took in a lot of the Jewish people. And the whole relationship and the, the Jewish the community in, in Shanghai is amazing. Yeah, There's see? so many stories that we would don't never, know about. would never know that. Yeah. And, I'm like, I don't want to go and write about that because I'm sure there's somebody there who's Afro-German now who has relatives who is like, oh, I could tell this story. Mm -hmm. So in telling... Yeah, so who has the right to tell whose story? That's also another thing, right? And, you know, that is something, too, that I... I won't say I go back and forth with, but I think that it's a fine line Mm -hmm. as well because I think I am all about own voices, but I don't think that you have to be Chinese to write right. Chinese characters. Right, right. You know? Um, and sometimes I wonder, the the big historical fiction book that I finished and that I've been trying to get an agent for, because my main male character is Japanese, has that been the issue? Hmm. Because he's not black. Hmm. And she's black. Right. And it's in World War Two, and nobody wants to remember those days and what um, happened and how these particular communities were oppressed. But it's still, there's stories that still need to be told. Absolutely. You know, there are ways that you can tell a story where you don't always picture white people as the bad guy, you know, and then sometimes they have to be, you know. In, In my particular story, I have three characters, and to me, they're neither the bad guy or the good guy. They're just a representation of how their people were in the 1940s in Little Tokyo. So give us a little context to how the Japanese character comes in, weaves into your main character, Naomi, who is like fleeing from the South. So the name of that book is called We Were Once Here and Then We Were Gone. Uh-huh. So it's a metaphor for both the Japanese who were once in Little Tokyo and then were interned. And then for the Southern blacks who come into Little Tokyo, okay. we name it Bronzeville and right. then five years later are all gone. And so that's how I came up with that title. And... Um, when she's in Little Tokyo, she runs into him. His name is Ben. Okay. Um, Yoshida, right as he is going off to camp. Okay. And the city is starting to flood with Southern blacks. Huh. So she's there for a good year, year and a half, getting her life together. But then he comes back from war injured. So he's kind of snuck his way back into Little Tokyo, which is now Bronzeville, right. as an injured soldier. And he's trying to wrap his head around this because, you know, less than two years ago, it was all Japanese. Right, right. And now he's smelling all this soul food <laughs> and great. American food yeah. and burgers and fries. And, yeah. and he's trying to adjust, mm. but he realizes that the black people are so loving and warm and welcoming that what he's been told is okay. not true. So shatters all of his what preconceptions. If, exactly. Okay, got it. And um, they just find a love in writing and reading. 
So he's always known, or he's kind of secretly known, about the Harlem Renaissance writers, and she knows about them. So when they discover they have this in common, it's kind of something they do. They sit on the stairs and they'll read, or they'll listen to Duke Ellington, and it's what brings them together. But it's also the little cultural differences that they're trying to maneuver to open up open up ways to get closer. And that's where you work your magic as a writer, right? Yes. It's those little details of the, cultural nuances yes, that you can't yes. just, you know. Yep. And in the deep. 1940s, you know, he had to be this perfect, he's the oldest, so he has to be this perfect Japanese man who's going to help run his father's jewelry shop when he comes back, and he marries the Japanese girl, and everything's mm. perfect, da-da-da-da. But deep down, he's a writer, mm. and he wants to go and teach English and he wants to write books and he wants to write about Japanese mythology and he's uh, Naomi's telling him about the goddesses and so he's like wow this is all very interesting and so they just really fall in like which really eventually turns no eventually it turns to love but it's like I saved that right for the last because I wanted the reader to be like hmm What's going on here? So do they get together kind of thing? Like, is this something that yeah, is their path? Yeah, you have path? to wait until I get an agent for the book oh, to gosh, find that out. leaving thing. <laughs> and that's another thing, you know, like writing. How do you create that, the craft of leaving someone hanging? You know, you look at all these episodics out there streaming. Mm-hmm. They hook you so well. <laughs> it's like I don't want to watch another episode. Well, it's so funny. It's so funny because I love Japanese and Korean dramas. Oh no, you're one of those. But, okay. Yes, I am. I'm hardcore, and you know why it is? Because not only I'm a writer, but because of you know having acting dreams and screenwriting dreams i want to know how they managed to do it so i was watching an episode of uh misty which is netflix latest and always they cut misty? off like, misty i'm even sure why it's called misty wait it's a korean drama yes okay and i i don't speak korean or know the alphabet but the title, the main title, is in Korean, but uh-huh. below it, it says Misty. Huh. And I was like, we haven't even had a character named Misty, so I wonder if it means something else. Um, and every time, they <laughs> cut it. And I was just like, really? <laughs> really? It's like, see? They play on you. They yes, and they get me so, so clever. Yes, yeah. and they get me so involved that as the writer, I, I forgot to take notes. Like, oh, how did we so build up thr- to yeah. you? And then you hooked me, and right. now I forgot to take That's notes. That's the brilliance of like good and storytelling. It, and it is, but I really believe I pick up on that, and I and it has helped me over the years. And this is my number one advice to people, especially if they want a writer. If you're a writer with dreams, read what you love. Read what you want to write. So if you want to be the next Stephen King, you should know all his books down pat, and you should know his competition, hmm. like Dean R. Coots. And you should know... Who is the latest Stephen King? And for me, I read a lot of historical fiction because I want to figure out, okay, if in the beginning these people seem like they're just going to be friends, but they end up together in the end, how do you drag that out? Yeah. How do you keep the mystery going? Right, you right. Because you've you got ke- the historical line, but then you've got the characters that you need to... And then there's like the nonlinear thing you can play with, right? How do you, how do you reveal what context and full I don't know I don't know the yeah. terms but it's just how do you how do you weave so many elements together right and, and then who's going to be prejudiced against whom 
you know? So mm. do I show her brothers showing, oh, I don't really like this guy, and are we truthful as to why that is? Mm. Do I show when his family comes back from camp and everybody's back in home and they're building their, rebuilding their jewelry right. shop? So are the what parents stories do you want to tell? Now, after three years, are they still going to be how Japanese parents are and be like, no, we found you a wife? Or are they going to be like, it's been the hardest three years of my life, do mm. whatever you want? So, but do you believe that the characters take control after some point? They tell you what is yes. going to happen. Yeah, they do. They do because I did not originally have the ending be what it is. Yeah. Um, I don't always do happy endings, but I also don't. I'm a strong believer in life is so crazy as it is. Why would I not give you the dream in a book? <laughs> but it's, I still didn't see it evolving and taking the steps that it did so i think there is a time where you step back and you just let the characters unfold and who they are and yeah. then your job you is just it. to but to get there it and but to, to get it, there and that's to get there. like yeah, yeah it's hard so there. let's take a quick break and give ourselves and listeners who are tuning in a chance to take in those amazing tips that uh, nina's giving us on on writing and maybe when we come back hopefully you can unpack a little bit more of your story uh what you want to tell us give us some tips and give us like and the, where you can get it. Yeah. And and the historical novels, I'm interested to know what you're reading, too, you know, and what's influenced you and all, all the great stuff. So don't go Love away. It. Yeah. Back here in the studio. That's right. K2H. And I am here with Nina Louise talking about race, culture, the intersections of history and storytelling and all that great stuff. All that wonderful jazz. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, Nina, I wanted to kind of... Um, open up the conversation about mixed relationships, mixed race, because we talked about, you know, how these histories that are told are so binary, right? You know, yes. we don't we don't think about that. And yet so many people are so many different things. Exactly, exactly. And my niece and nephew, you know, they were both born here in the States, but um, they live in Naha. They've been raised there since they were little, little. In Japan. Yes. Sakura, they came here for a couple of years. And I think when Sakura went back, she was four, maybe five or six. Wait, this is your brother's? It's my younger brother's, my ototo. Okay. My younger brother's <laughs> children. Oh. Um, so Sakura is about 26 now. And then Yamato just turned 22. Okay. And, you know, I think they're just at you know, the 20s, where you're trying to figure out who you are and how you can make a living mm. being who you are yeah, yeah. and liking yourself. And lucky for me, they're both kind of creative minds. So she likes to write anime, magna books. And so mm. she was bullied quite a bit when she was in school. And my goal is to go and spend some time with her and let's see if we can put those stories down into a book and maybe make it Great. an action-packed ma uh, magna. Um and then Yamato is a dancer. He is a dancer. I tried to get him to audition for Janet kind Jackson's uh, hip-hop dancer. And I tried to get him to uh, audition for Janet Jackson, but he was too nervous. And then also, then you know, then the pandemic hit. Right, so of her Las Vegas show um, was stalled. But they're both creative minds. And so I they're, sorry, just to clarify, they're of mixed race, uh, of half black, half Japanese, mm -hmm. and living and growing up in Japan. 
Yep. Right. So what does that mean to their identity? Like, do they, uh, how do you, you know, it's such it's an oversimplifying it by saying, oh, which one do they connect to more? So well, how? But yeah, no, in, in a sense, it's, it's very, sometimes you can see them and meet them and know right away, which is so interesting mm. how somebody comes out physically. Yes. As opposed to how they are internally. Mm-hmm. So for example, Sakura looked very much mixed. She had curly hair, skin was a little bit darker, but she is Japanese through and through. (laughs) All about the culture, the people. She loves it there. She would never leave. Right. Yamato looks completely Japanese, (laughs) other than having curly hair. Right. And he is sort of the opposite. He wants to leave. He wants to explore. He wants to join a hip-hop dancing that's group. great <laughs> um but you know i just there think about, in their culture they yeah. want them to you know hey you're supposed to work and then eventually find your career right and then that that's it so that's you know? overpowering the japanese cultural the structural aspect of the culture right um but then you think like what informs you like is it really the way you appear that informs you of where you should be placed or is it the structure around you the cultural kind of like things that you are built to learn to believe in your values that inform how you how you you are yeah yeah because you know even if yamato did come here for a year he might love it but he might be like I gotta go home. Right. You, you Americans are crazy. Yeah. So yeah. you know, but sometimes, especially when you're mixed and and you don't have a taste of both worlds, you always think it's greener on the other side. Yeah. And sometimes it is. Sometimes you thrive when you move and you place yourself amongst different people, different cultures, different environments. And sometimes you're just like a fish out of water, and you're like, I gotta go yeah. back home. Right. And where is home? Like, where do you belong? Exactly. That's another thing. Exactly. I guess, do you think that you being, you know, moving over here as a young teenager, has Hawaii become your home? Or do you still have roots? No, Uh, I always tell people that Hawaii is my home. Okay. Because it was my formidable years. It's where I grew up. and, And my teenage years defined who I am today. Can, can I ask also, you about your teenage dating life? Can I like can we go there? <laughs> we definitely can. Okay, but it, it, so whoever's listening, like those Waipahu <laughs> grads, are gonna be like, oh shoot. <laughs> well, my um, high school love has uh, married and has like five kids or something now. So okay, so t- he's let's doing ex- he's good, doing extremely good. well. But um, like, did when, you date other races? Like, was there tell tell? And you know what? what? I'm not. I can't. You know, he, I hope he's not listening <laughs> because I'm just thinking, man, I can't remember what he is mixed with. But I want to say he's Filipino, and it's either Korean or Chinese descent i'm okay. not okay. sure which and as i picture his parents neither one clicks like i can't go oh <laughs> for sure yeah that one, right. he, he's definitely part korean or definitely chinese i don't remember i think i met his dad once or twice and his mom only once i actually wrote a short story about the meeting of his <laughs> mom because she found out that we were um sneaking over to the place, the apartment, while they were at work. As teenagers do. As teenagers do. (laughs) And so we had a Pizza Hut lunch. Okay. A meeting with my mom and his mom. And let's just say that was the slow road to the end of the relationship. But, you know, it was two fun, fabulous years. He was a break dancer. I was a wannabe singer. 
Right. I had a little group, and we sang at the school. And that was one of the things, too, that I think warmed the other students to us is because we were kind of fun, mm. liked music. Mm. And so other students realized we were a little bit more approachable than maybe we'd looked. And, you know, that's the thing, too, with being black and being a female. People don't want to approach you because they think you have this already this complex. Do, do you I, think you were oh, unapproachable? Yeah, I've, yeah. I've had several people, all nationalities, tell me, oh, well, you know what, I wanted to be friends with you in the beginning, but you seem so distant huh. or so, um, God, I forgot what this one lady used the word for for me, and we were both working at The Gap, and I was like, no, that's not me, that's just my personality, and she's like, yeah, well, I know that now, but, but I see, was that just goes so scared back to, of you, and I'm like, why are you scared of me, though? This is where we start the conversation again, going back to why we have these preconceptions, these kind of prejudgments, mm-hmm. why do we think someone's snobby, why do we think somebody's ignorant, and, you know... And scary, when right. you haven't even had a conversation with them, Yeah, you know, and it's, it's, uh, it's, it's very weird, but I... Like I mentioned, growing up here taught me who I am and who I love being around. I've never shied away from having Asian friends, connecting with them, going out or to invites. If it was, you want to try Korean food, you want to try real Japanese food, I've never like ever told anybody no. I love exploring. I love meeting different people. There was just a period in my 20s where it just seemed like all these different people didn't want to love me mm. <laughs> or just want, didn't want to meet me. So, um, and that's okay because it helped me define who I am, but also made me curious to find out why people were treating me the way I was. And then it did come down to, you know, what people are told, what they are taught. And I was just like, wow, who is, who is telling you guys this? But I forget that, you know, media plays a huge role oh, yeah. in people's lives. Sure. And just because you live in Japan or you live in Korea doesn't mean you don't get an English paper that's saying all this crime and everybody's mm-hmm. black committing it. Yeah. You know, so... I was just going to say, because, you know, the whole model minority myth is built on this whole false narrative. And only, you know, you mentioned it before, is how um, the white supremacist system is kind of built to split us apart and to make one pit against each other. And by creating these 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 false images right yep. and yep. what does it mean to be a model minority oh so you're the good one who works hard not like the like right, that so right. you're comparing yourself yep. to somebody else yep. so and then when somebody's growing up and they're hearing that you yeah. know of course they're gonna think like oh those Asians think they're just too good they think they're white they don't want to right. be with us or they don't even want to know us or they don't even want to look and say hello and nine times out of ten, it has nothing to do with that. Yeah. You know, when I we went back for Yamato's graduation, I met, it was um, Lily's brother's wife's mother. And she must have a history with knowing black people because that woman was not afraid of me. Okay. She was not nice. afraid to touch me. She kept touching my <laughs> skin, telling me how beautiful I was. And I was like, man, I wish I could speak Japanese because... There's a story here. Yeah, that connection. She must have known somebody or Hmm. wanted to know somebody, but because of her time period, it was just forbidden or something happened Hmm. because she's letting it all out now. (laughs) You know, and now that I'm learning a little bit more Japanese, 
Hopefully she'll be around when I can go and visit. But those are stories, too, I'm very curious of. But do you think there's an obsession, not, okay, not obsession, but a fascination with other cultures as well? Because, you know, like, you know, with Asians, when we, when I traveled to Europe, you know, years ago, people would still be touching my hair, like, really? Wow. You know. And, and I do believe that that happens, like, because my hair is naturally curly and I don't wear it in braids, I have never had that... Um, hair issue where mm. people always want to come mm. up and touch mm. your hair and yeah. I hear China, you hear that I hear in China with your black oh, and they're in braids that they re- they will just do it like they don't even ask they just anything. do it yeah. and yeah. I think it's I think it's hilarious like I think I would think it's hilarious but I have studied culture so I yeah, know so a little bit about the right. Japanese I know a little bit about Koreans I know a lot about Japanese so I know when to be offensive offended <laughs> and when not to and I think the average American, and especially the average black American who doesn't have more than a paragraph in their history book about mm-hmm. Asians yeah. or Asian Americans, are going to think these people are, are crazy or what's wrong with them? Why don't they know about or, black or people? Or boring geeks who just don't. Yeah. yeah and, and you just have to research and find out. But I believe when you go to any country, that that is almost kind of like your duty to find out a little bit about the people that you're going to absolutely that's a huge responsibility i believe because that will help you um flourish in relationships and career relationships and social atmosphere where if you just go and be like oh i'm an american everything will be all right here yeah, you can have a... I've heard so many stories where you people You hear go the people get in trouble. They go to Bali and they, yeah. they take nude pictures of the temples. Like, well, shame on yeah. you for not respecting and not, and knowing. not knowing. Like, how would you not know that that's How not, would you not because know? Because you don't want to look into it. Because yes. you don't want to take the time. Exactly. But I advise everybody, for someone who's been to Japan twice already and looking forward to going back a third time, I advise everybody to look into it and just see. Hmm. See what they find offensive, what they find not offensive what's respectful what do they love like i had no idea if you just try to talk a little bit of japanese to them they love it and i was like really that brings in so cool (laughs) i'm gonna take japanese 102 as soon as i can you You gotta get over there you just have to immerse and then yeah and that as well and that's what i just have to be as well but i think when you understand people this whole appropriation or appreciation Uh does not become such a thin line you know with k-pop being so big now too that's all you ever hear sometimes from the black community is that oh they're appropriating they're appropriating and i think a lot of it if you really look at it is appreciation and some of those artists will admit it that when you hear who yeah. they love and who they admire, they're all black artists. Yes. You know? Yes, that's an admiring. It is. Yes. You're right. It's and not just trying to copy. And who will say bad words, put their hair weird ways, or, you know, be very hip-hop-ish in a, in a right. music video instead of being K-pop-ish. Um, okay. And, but it's still, to me, it's still like giving respect where respect is due. Can I ask you then how you feel about Aquafina? I, I don't know if you've known her. You know, yes. Al- okay, so people it, who don't know, Aquafina from Queens has this character and she has that um, vernacular where people are yeah. criticizing her for the trying to be vernacular. black. And so, what are you, what's so, your take So, you know, that? it's so interesting because I, I am a Aquafina fan. Okay. And I never, <laughs> I never thought about it in the ways in which people are are taking issue with her until they started breaking it down 
And so I get that. But at the same time, I also think that when you allow people to be who they are, you know, um, and if they're not putting on an act to get to be famous or to be known, but it's part of their personality because, well, they grew up with black people, so it's just who they are. You can't change it. But if it's an act Put on. and a show, right? then I think, you know, people can take up issues with that because yeah. you are, in a sense, riding the wave of a culture mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. it looks good on you. But then when somebody who actually from that culture does it, it's offensive or it's an insult to be a black person. You know, and TikTok has the same argument, too, with influencers who are white and stealing black dances or black music and and turning it around to where it favors them, mm -hmm. but not recognizing the artist. Then the black influencer comes and goes, hey, why aren't you at least giving us, you know, credit? credit. So I think with, Aquafina, with Aquafina, I think. I think she did good with saying she's sorry, she wishes that, you know, mm -hmm. she hadn't taken this, this route, but this is also what helped her get mm -hmm. to where she mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. um, but the issue to me is not always with the person, but the, but the production companies, so the sure. people who run Hollywood. So instead of going after her my thought process is is why are we not asking her to be a part of the solution instead of criticizing her and then now making right. her an enemy how, how can we progress an yeah. enemy, but now she doesn't really want to be our friend yeah so we've turned a possible ally to well, you right know, there was a teaching so, moment that yeah, could have so maybe cool got to me and mean to me why would I want to help you? Yeah. And that's a that's a huge thing I noticed that happens hmm. is that we go after people hmm. and instead of saying, okay, you admit that this is how you got your fame, this is how you're famous, and you're gonna back away from that, you're, you're at a name now, but now can you go back and give us our due? Or can you somehow help other black artists who are trying hmm. to do the same thing as you? You know, can you open up some doors? Right. It's like, don't shut the door on her. Yeah. She's somebody who's who's gonna make. She's a yeah, she's, shaker she's now. She's got her foot in the door. Yeah. And the so people who support her should actually open up and do something. Exactly. Yeah. So good point. I get the. I yeah. get the. Hey, you're doing this and it's wrong and it makes us look bad and and people say that we can't be like this because they're letting you portray our characters. Okay, but then also hmm. say we could use you on our side. This mm. is how we think you can help us. Are you willing to do this? But how do you feel about the kind of the narrative of people saying, oh gosh, it's so, you know, Black Lives Matter is oversensitizing everything and everything is reduced to a race issue and that, you know, people can't even do anything. We can't even tell a joke now. How do you feel when people say things like that? Well, well, sometimes I actually will, will agree because I feel, and it's not just Black Lives Matter, but I feel in the world in general, hmm. everybody's easy to be offended. Yeah. There's and no say, right and it, PC it, word to say anything Yeah, now. and it's just like, well, can you tell this joke? Can you be funny about this? Hmm. And you're wondering, like, will my friends even think that it, this is okay? So it's it's become 
a, a space where we are very sensitive, but I also believe that people always want to blame mm-hmm. black people when they're in the right. <laughs> you know, so instead of saying, okay, we won't do that, instead of just saying, we'll start giving you credit, which should be so easy to do. Right. Basic. You want to just then start putting more blame. Yeah. And making it's it a still look like thing. the yeah, still look like the bad person because, you know, we want to defend who we are in our culture. And I would say the majority of black people are not saying don't enjoy black culture. They're saying just remember that it's black culture. Just don't say that it's your culture and try and get away with it because then I'm going to come back and tell you you're wrong and give you evidence. Mm -hmm. That's where the problem lies. Just acknowledge it. And there's something very interesting in this world today where people would rather not say sorry or excuse me. I notice that is a hard word for people to but say. But it shouldn't be that store. hard. And it's one word. But people walk in front of me all the That's time. That's self-righteousness? Yeah. Really? And I'm like, God, is it so hard yeah. to say excuse me? Because yeah. you know what? I would have stepped back. All you have to do is just say, say excuse, excuse me. me and exactly. And move to the side. Right. I've had a woman stand right behind me to the side for forever. And I had no idea she just wanted to get by. Until uh, she edged by she me like and hit me, and I was it. like, "Oh, excuse me." Yeah. And then she just looked at me, and I thought, "Is that? Yeah. Is it so difficult now that we can't even be polite to the one another?" The simple stuff. And yeah. I think that's what black culture, black people want is they want for others to be accountable and just say, "Hey, thank you." Thank you for your music. Thank you for your dances. Thank you for your films and your characters and your comedy. Thank you for your history. There's nothing wrong with that. No. And why don't we thank people with one song? Ooh, um, nice. Uh, before we leave, I want to do. Well, I know I'm not going to let you go yet. I'm just going to let you like let's enjoy one song that okay, it's kind of thinks of me. Thank you, Ooh. Louis Armstrong and Duke Ellington. Um, Drop me off in Harlem. And the reason I want to play this one is to celebrate the Harlem. Okay, this is the, the shameless plug for me. I'm so excited. <laughs> but in my book, we talk about Harlem Renaissance writers. So it's yes. a plug for us both. Okay, so let's plug it. So Nina, her book talks about the Harlem Renaissance. And my film is going to the Harlem International Film Festival. Woohoo! Yeah! Congrats! <laughs> All right, nothing like some beautiful Harlem jazz, right? Thank you, thank you, Duke, and um, who was it? <laughs> Duke and Louis, sorry. Okay, uh, Nina, we are here. We have a short few minutes before we leave K2H, but we need to remind our listeners what your your beautiful book is about, The Yay. Sea of Dead Souls, um, what your inspirations were, uh, what you want the listeners to leave thinking about, and how to access it. Oh, definitely. So my inspiration, first off, was The Corner of Bitter and Sweet by Jamie Ford. Hmm. That was a lovely novel set also in World War II around Japanese internment, and it was a story between a Chinese young man and a Japanese girl and um, the island of sea women is also another lovely story by Lisa C that really opened my eyes about the struggles of Korean people from Japanese um, imperialism 
and then uh, World War One, back in that era, and then um, Pachinko. Pachinko also has Korean and Japanese um, stories mm-hmm. during a, during wartime, and that's actually just turned into a movie. So oh. I'm excited about that. That'll be on Apple TV. Oh, I didn't know. Yes. That. So um, really wonderful inspirations, and because those stories were not just all of one culture. Exactly. I was like, see, this these books can be done. Yeah. They can be done and they have an audience. So And can I just say that when you say it's not just one culture, we we our simple common Americans tend to think of it as black and white when we say um, multicultural is mm-hmm. you know we don't see like oh it's nuanced between Japanese and Chinese cultures like we think oh right. Asians is the same thing yeah it's like, uh, hello. Asians are, there's so many different Asians you can't just say Asian people and mean thank you, know. you. <laughs> so and I learned that too you know I struggled in my 20s because you only know what you learn so sometimes right. if you're not getting your education sure from the books that you get at school, you have to go outside. And the bookstore was a, a tremendous way for me to open up and see. But you had to dig. You had, you know, it didn't come to you. Yeah, and these books were not assigned to me. So when I did the research for yeah. both books, yeah. my world opened up, especially with in regards to black history. But to the Sea of Dead Souls, quickly, it's about a southern family in Shreveport, Louisiana, right in 1940s during the second great migration who is trying to escape for the third fourth time actually trying to get out of the south and find better life better jobs in the north you know they were making almost five five six times more you're getting 75 cents an hour to farm where you can get five bucks an hour you know to work a war job so they were trying to leave but there were people you know the law neighbors Everybody was trying to keep everyone home because if they were gone, who was going to form their land? Hmm. So where were the sweet potatoes going to come from? Where was this? Where was the sugar going to come from? Where was corn going to come from? So they were trying to keep them there from that. And this is the story about a sheriff who holds this family down because he's a little obsessed and, um, you know, with the goddess by her side. Of course, the goddess of the ocean and the river. Works hard. Oh. She works hard to, to get out of there and to, you know, to play the sheriff's game and to get her brother to safety. That is her main thing. You know, I want my brother to have a better life. And so that is to the sea of dead souls. Sorry. That is okay. And um, you can get that. You can order a pre-copy on offmenupress.com. Once again, that's off. Menu OFF. Yep. Mm-hmm. Menupress.com. Shop or slash shop. And then uh, you'll see the cover and you can go ahead and pre order anytime. I encourage everybody to get a copy for yourself and then one for the local library. Yes. Hopefully, I'll be doing a reading in May at the shop just down yes. the street. So we'll see. But you know, yes. It, it's so. Um, it's such a pleasure to have someone who is local and yet talking about something historical from different places and bringing in, like as we mentioned, the the multicultural aspect of different people uh, and weaving it together in something so yeah. important. 
I think that era is a very important time. And I just wanted to ask one more question, is why you chose 1940 or 1941 I think the era chose me, honestly. Ah. And, I, and as I chose it, I realized there are no stories about black and Asian people in the bookstore in the 1940s and, and no 50s. films. And so there's and mine too. And your, your film, and then <laughs> so, God willing, I'll get an Asian for the actual huge book. But this excellent. novella starts it. You know, it starts Naomi's story, and I then the it. next book, you know, is the conclusion. So with the Japanese guy. Yes. <laughs> ben. 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 I want to know what happens to them. Stay tuned. <laughs> okay. That's Nina Louise and her new book novella, The Sea of Dead Souls. Please follow it. Please read more. Please be inspired by historical novels and do things that break the uh, comfort spaces and learn about each other's cultures. That's all I can say after Amen. we talk to right? Yeah. yeah. That's what, lovely. I couldn't have said it better myself. Thank you so much and uh, good luck with your book and we're going to look forward to many more things from you. Awesome. My pleasure. Thank you.